Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Well, hi there, Zelda. Hello, Denise. It's been a beautiful week. How are you doing? Pretty good. It's beautiful outside. It's definitely spring. Yeah, it's gorgeous outside. I am just like, yeah. And we're here recording faithfully for our listeners. (laughs) And I've kicked (laughs) my kids outside. I'm like, yeah. That's the best place for them. There are a couple of them are like, oh, I don't want to play with anybody or this person's not available. And I'm like, guess what? I don't care. I want you outside. <laughs> well, what am I going to do? Figure it out. Be, you're creative young souls. Yeah. You can figure this out. I mean, I'm Gen X. <laughs> you're Gen X. I'm just yeah. kind of like, figure it out. But you're not yep. going to be saying on your devices. <laughs> you're not going to uh-huh. be watching TV all day. Uh, nope. Poor kids. You're so mean. I am. But then when they're mommy. out there, they're having a good time. They haven't come back in yet. So. Oh, good. They're having That's a good awesome. time. As long as they. Yeah. Don't... When we were kids, our parents just tossed us out the door and said, come back in when the streetlights go on. Yeah. Or come back for lunch. Come back for dinner. Your yeah. parents let you eat lunch? Yeah. Man, you're the. You have great parents. <laughs> you are a lucky duck. <laughs> My parents were like, grub for yourselves. So. I remember we were stationed in Germany. We're on base living and we were on the third floor, four story walk up and moms would be put, putting their heads out the windows going time to come in deep. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that was the cue for all the kids to start leaving the playground to go up and have their lunch and then come mm-hmm. back down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I always ate lunch. It was an important part of the day. <laughs> I like my PB&J. Thank you very much. (laughs) And you still do, I bet. I do. And I love it. Okay, this might be weird, but I love putting... I use crunchy peanut butter, so keep this in mind. So this cracks my husband up. I have to put Doritos inside the sandwich or Fritos. And they've got to be the barbecue Fritos. That is so gross. I don't even have words for it. (laughs) I like the extra texture, the extra crunch. I thought you were going to say something like, and now I, I don't, I mean, grape jelly's great, but I've really, you know, I love my blueberry jam. You know, I yeah. thought you were going to say something like that. Not, oh, I, I, I have to make an abomination years. and eat it in front of people. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. Why just put a raw egg in there while you're at it? Oh, no. You know? <laughs> but I do like the occasional fried egg sandwich, so. Oh, those are delicious anyway. With bacon and a nice mm-hmm. fresh slice of tomato on top. At least you didn't say with peanut butter. That would oh, be. Ooh, no. See, I, I don't know. I question now that you use Doritos and, and well, tortilla I, I question, so. do you eat Doritos with a sandwich? Yeah, I wouldn't be. A, I wouldn't object to that, no. So what's Mm-mm. the difference? You're just blending it all together in one. But there's a difference between blending it in your stomach and blending it in your mouth. <laughs> there's a big difference. So, oh my, you know, we get onto these really important side topics, but yes. I'm very excited to talk about our person today. Yeah. And before we start, we should introduce ourselves all the way. Oh, oh wait, this that's is right. Murderous Roots. <laughs> and we are not your average podcast because we look for familial links by going into their family trees. 
So, and this tree, oh my gosh, I can't wait to get into this one with you. This is so exciting. And I have to say, one of the things that I found so intriguing is that so much of it was resolved through old-fashioned detective work and then public interaction where they're posting pictures and say, tell us what you know and getting clues that way. And science! Oh, yeah. So, yeah, and some of his victims weren't even identified until after he had already died in prison. Well, heck, he I wasn't mean, even identified as a kill, yeah. as a serial killer until after he died in prison. Yeah. Now, this one was suggested to us by a listener, Bobby, and she was going to join us, but unfortunately, she wasn't feeling well today, so we're kind of bummed not to have her here. Mm-hmm. However, I'm excited to do this. I did, I listened to the podcast um, Murder Squad with Paul Holes and Billy Jensen. Uh-huh. They have a really great episode on their podcast about this, and they're looking for more information but- but who is this? Who is this person? This is Terry Peter Rasmussen. Ooh, do do do. And it's I always want to say Peter. It's Peter. Peter. And I honestly keep wanting to say Rasputin every time <laughs> I say his name, and it isn't. It's Rasmussen. Yes. And I'm. I will make this mistake many times. I will try not to, for sake of your editing prowess. But I'm. I will do I my best. That. <laughs> Because I know I'm who has better to edit and better this. at editing, but mm, yeah, <laughs> there's only so much I can do. Exactly. Or I could just leave it in and let people go. We she is every bit of a numbskull as we thought. Well, I, I don't know if you've noticed. I do leave in some of our mistakes because I got to prove that we're human. <laughs> yeah, that's totally fine. It makes it more real. It makes it more fun. I think you know? so. The way I had to kind of order it in my head because there's so much going on is I had to kind of outline. Who are all these people that are involved? Mm-hmm. And then what did he do? And that kind of thing. So I'm taking a little bit of a, a sideways jump into this today. I'm going to call this our cast of characters. So <laughs> first we have Terry Peter Rasmussen. He is a serial killer and all around bad person. <laughs> he was known as the chameleon killer for his many pseudonyms, such as Bob Evans, Curtis Kimball, Larry Vanner, and Gordon Jensen. The name Curtis Kimball gave me a bit of a shock as it's incredibly close to the name of a man I once dated. Oh my gosh. Fortunately, was not the same man. No way related. But <laughs> it kind of was like, what? I re-looked at that picture. I'm like, okay, whew, cool. Not the well, same And he person. would have been a lot older than you, so I would think that yeah. would have caught your attention. Yeah, I, I kind of always had a thing for older guys, though. So well, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. But I think yeah. that would highlight going, was that guy that much older than me? So. Right, exactly. But, you know, when you're having a panic, you don't think logically. That's true. Then we have Mrs. Terry Rasmussen the first. She had four children with Rasmussen, mm-hmm. three girls and a boy divorces him and keeps the kids away. This is key because they all lived through him. So they are all alive. So then we have Marlise Elizabeth Honeychurch. She was a woman who was involved with Rasmussen who had two daughters, Sarah and Marie, and all of them were murdered by Rasmussen. Then we have Unsun Yoon, a chemist from California, involved with Rasmussen, murdered by Rasmussen, and the only murder conviction in Rasmussen's lifetime. Yeah. Then we have Denise Bodan, a woman who was involved with Rasmussen, went missing, presumed dead at the hands of Rasmussen. She had a six-month-old daughter when she became involved with Rasmussen. Then we have Lisa Jensen. So she was a young girl, purportedly Rasmussen's daughter, later found to have been Denise Bodan's daughter. Father is still unknown. Rasmussen abandoned her in California with people he'd met. She lived, 
and she discovered that Rasmussen was not her father in 2015, but was in fact her kidnapper. So that's like some key characters here, but we have a couple more. So now we have Elizabeth Evans. No one knows who she is. She was a woman identified as a wife of Rasmussen in New Hampshire, but she's never been found, and there are loads of theories. Mm-hmm. Then there's the unidentified daughter of Terry Rasmussen, whose nickname's Angel at this point. Her body was found in the same barrel as Sarah and identified to be Rasmussen's daughter in 2016. Elizabeth Evans might be her mom, but no one knows because they've never been able to trace who this Elizabeth person was. Right. Okay, so those are the main characters. Now we move into his crimes, okay? So in addition to everything else, he kited checks, he stole electricity, aggravated assault, theft, drunk driving, child abandonment, and of course, murder most foul. Oh, of course. Where did he live during all of this? (laughs) Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Virginia, Texas, Ohio, Oregon, Hawaii, and California. And he settled in New Hampshire sometime in the late 1970s. We're going to scroll back a little bit. Rasmussen was born on December 23rd, 1943 in Denver, Colorado. What I found fascinating is in one of his mugshots, he has a completely different birth date. Mm. which I thought was kind of interesting. But of course he was under an alias at that point. So why you get to have fake birth dates if you have a fake alias. So, so he grew up in Arizona and attended North high school in Phoenix, which I know where that is until (laughs) dropping out during his sophomore year in 1960. He enlisted in the United States Navy in 1961 and served until he was discharged in 1967. So he married in 1969, had four children with the, you know, Mrs. Terry Rasmussen the first, right, and lived with his family in Phoenix and Redwood City, California. His wife left him and took the kids in 1975 after he was arrested for aggravated assault. They last saw Rasmussen around December 1975 or 1976 when he showed up with an unidentified woman, not the purported Elizabeth Evans, and the divorce I think was finalized in 1978. September 1978. Okay. Awesome, Saucy. You got all the details. <laughs> yes, and so, actually, just just a little bit of okay. um, trivia for you. Apparently, she filed for divorce from him twice. She really? first filed for divorce for him in October 1972 in San Mateo, California. So it must have been withdrawn. Mm-hmm. And then she filed the second time and the final time in October 1977. It just took okay. almost a year to go through. Wow. Well, apparently, he was a mean drunk, so I suspect that had something to do with it. Yeah. So then after this point, the things start to move fast and they get really confusing because there's all these different locations and names and women that he was involved with. One of the articles that I leaned on heavily for my information, and I'm going to send you this link so you can put it on the website. Okay. Um, the title is How a Jane Doe Child Case Uncovered a Serial Killer, Identified Victims, and Changed the Use of DNA Forensics by Lauren Afrin, Boaz Halibon, and Mark Dorian, dated March 19, 2020. I think I saw that article myself. It's a good article. (laughs) So now I'm going to work a little bit backward. So around the year 2000, a California chemist named Eunsoon Yoon brought a man by the name of Larry Vanner home to meet the family. The family didn't like him, but she stayed with him anyway, even marrying him in an informal ceremony. Was that legal, by the way, Denise? No, it was not an official marriage. Okay. So now then we fast forward a little bit to 2002. So two years later... 
Her family's starting to get pissed because they haven't seen her in a long time. She hasn't called or written or anything. And Vanner just kept making excuses and saying, she says she doesn't want to talk to you anymore. And they were like, well, we want to hear that from her. We don't want to hear that from you because they just obviously, for good reason, did not trust the man. So his family got law enforcement involved and they discovered Yoon's body buried in cat litter in a crawl space in their home. And she had died of blunt force trauma to the head. So they arrested Vanner, who was convicted because he stood up in court and confessed to killing her. And then he died in prison from various health issues. This is a common mistake that serial killers make eventually, is that eventually they kill a woman who has family that has the resources and persistence to make sure that somebody's brought to justice. And in his case, he made the mistake of killing a woman and leaving her at their home. Right. Too. And mm-hmm. there, there was a certain degree of arrogance there that, oh, mm-hmm. I'm not going to get caught. Right. Yeah. There's. But a lot of the women, I mean, the, the family, you know, they were worried about where their daughters and their sisters and their half-sisters went. But they crossed the country so they couldn't find them or, mm-hmm. you know, something else happened. Or because of the aliases, they were never able to track him down. Until much later. But this was the one where he got thrown in jail for. Right. So then, as part of his criminal history in California, he'd been convicted of child abandonment. So there was one detective in the Yoon case who was really stuck on the identity of this girl. If Vanner was her father, who was her mother? Well, through genetic testing, they linked the young woman to Denise Boudin, who'd gone missing in New Hampshire. The genetic link was to Denise's dad, who was still alive. So this would have been the little girl's grandfather. Right. This is where the cases start to blow wide open. They track down all of Rasmussen's aliases and eventually start to link unsolved murders to Rasmussen. So Lisa Jensen, who had spent the whole life thinking that that was her name and that Gordon Jensen was her father, found that her birth name was Dawn Bodan, Jensen was not her father, and that she still had family on her mom's side who welcomed her with open arms. Now Jensen's true identity, Terry Rasmussen, was not revealed by authorities until 2017. So this man died in prison and remained under a false name until seven years after his death. So now we're going to scroll back in time a little bit farther. In New Hampshire in 1995, the bodies of a woman and a child were discovered in barrels in the woods. They were buried unidentified. In 2000, another barrel was discovered in the same vicinity, this time with two little girls in it. Now, because of the work done by genetic genealogists and relentless family members of the deceased, the woman and two of the children were identified in 2019, so two years ago, (laughs) literally only two years ago, as Marlise Honeychurch and her daughter Sarah and Marie. Yeah. The third little girl found with them has been identified as Terry Rasmussen's daughter, but that was in 2016, but her mother has not yet been identified. Now, some recent stuff in January, on January 21st of 2021, so two months ago, police in Louisiana announced that a new genealogy research shows that the unidentified victim found in the barrels might have relatives in Pearl River County, Mississippi. It's believed that... Oh, I missed that. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And it's believed that the girl and her biological mother are descendants of one of two men born in the mid-1800s. So, Mississippi listeners, think about getting your DNA tested to see who this little girl belonged to. And since the authorities think she was likely born in either Texas, California, Arizona, or Oregon, based on Rasmussen's locations between 1972 and 1975, when they think this girl was born, all of those states should participate too. 
Oh, yeah. And basically anybody anywhere. Because yeah. how people move mm-hmm. after. Now, if you happen to know your ancestors were in that area mm-hmm. at that time, definitely. But do, they, do you know the names of the ancestors that they um, identified them? Yes, they did. I didn't write them down in this. But when you start talking about the ancestors, when we get to your part, I'll look it up really quick because it's on one of my open okay. tabs. Because might that be funny? Yeah. <laughs> that would be crazy, wouldn't it? That'd be so cool. Yes. So, in addition to Denise Boudin, who's never been found, the unidentified mother of the unidentified little girl, and the elusive Elizabeth Evans, all of whom Rasmussen killed, but never convicted as he died before they were discovered, or, I'm sorry, died before they were identified. There are a couple more unidentified victims that police are working to see if there's a connection to Terry Rasmussen. These are victims who died of blunt force trauma to the head, then stuffed into containers and dumped, which was his M.O. Further, there was an infant girl in Rasmussen's custody at the same time as Lisa Jensen slash Dawn Boudin, and that infant disappeared. When the folks investigating the child abandonment asked Lisa if she had any brothers or sisters, she said she did, but that they had died from, quote-unquote, eating grass mushrooms during a camping trip. (laughs) She had been sexually abused, but Rasmussen was never charged with that because they didn't want to make the little girl testify against him in court. So for me, the biggest mysteries are, why did he let Don Bodan live? And how many other women and girls did he actually kill? That is a big question. The only thing I could think of was maybe why he kept Don alive is maybe she reminded him of one of his daughters. But true, it could be. But at the same time, he had no problem killing his own daughter. I know. So it was a theory. I, I just think it was a good one. I, I, just, I just find that so strange because in my head the way this works out and this is not based on any fact because we don't have these facts Mm -hmm. and Mr. Rasmussen himself never talked about it so it was just you know there's lots of details we don't know but the girls that he killed out in New Hampshire were all old enough to have had you know good like not good memories but a memory of him that was strong right and for some reason he didn't want to be identified anymore but that Don Botan at the time would have only been a few months old, you know, less than two years mm-hmm. old at the time that he killed the others. And she has no memory of her mother. And, you know, the memories of her father are obviously not very good ones. So I kind of wonder if maybe it was that, I mean, I hate to say this, but he had access to a girl who wouldn't remember that she had connections to other people, you right. know? And I suspect that by the time all is said and done and, you know, DNA technology continues to get better and better, you know, even genetic genealogy, which was, you know, just a couple of years ago, something Mm -hmm. that was almost unheard of is becoming something that's every day. We're probably going to find a lot more victims of this asshole. Yeah, I can only imagine how many more victims we're going to find of other serial killers that have mm-hmm. passed away as well i agree it, especially like at the least green get river their killer. names like the green river killer mm-hmm. you know possibly even like ted bundy or gacy i mean yeah maybe they'll finally families will finally have answers even if the families are long gone yeah there'll be something right right so well, what can you tell us denise because i bet you dug up some pretty cool stuff well, I did on his family. Now, I doubt I have much more than you on Terry himself, mm-hmm. because as you discovered and everybody else knows, he's hard to track because of all his aliases. And trust me, I looked under every alias trying to find a clue. He knew how to avoid the um, press and getting his name out there. 
But I did at least track a little bit of where he was at different points. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I know he was in Arizona and then he's in the Navy. In 1967, he lived in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And that's where he got married. Wait, no. He got married in 1969. Actually, he got married in 1968. Oh, really? In Honolulu. I have yes. that wrong because I had a marrying in 1969. I think some other people might have had it wrong. It, I mm-hmm. found the marriage announcement in the paper. Nice. They got married in 68 in Honolulu. And then by 69, they're in Arizona. In 1970, he's in Redwood City, California. In 1973, he's in Phoenix again. And then from 77 to 81, New Hampshire, 81, California. It's just so hard to track this man. I have, I do have a couple notes and fast facts for you. In November 1959, he was on the honor roll at in high school. So I can't see any clear reason why he would have dropped out of high school because I don't think it was an academic issue. Interesting. Yeah. And I saw his picture from high school and he was kind of attractive. Mm-hmm. By 1969, they had their twins mm-hmm. in Arizona. There was a birth announcement. And both of the the twins have been very vocal about their dad. But at the same time, I don't feel right putting their name out here, here. Mm-hmm. But you, they're easy to find if you're mm-hmm. that curious. But let's start with Terry's siblings. Because Terry had three. Two older sisters, Joanne and Jackie, and a younger brother, Danny. Hmm. Brother Danny Lee was born in June 1950 in Denver. And around 1968, he married for the first time, Nancy Ann. He was serving in the U.S. Army, stationed at Fort Ord. While she was local to the Phoenix, it's likely they knew each other in high school. That's my guess. But the marriage wouldn't last, no doubt in part due to his time serving in Vietnam. Mm. Because he did, he was classified as a Vietnam veteran. Okay. By 1974, Danny was no longer serving in the Army and living in Hawaii. And he was broke as well, because I saw a note in the paper with a list of bankruptcies and his name was on it, along with his debt amount. Oh, wow. Which was, I think, around $6,000, which at that time was quite a bit. Mm-hmm. In August 1976, Danny would re-enlist in the U.S. Army. By 1978, Danny had married again and was a father of three girls and one four-year-old son. Hmm. He lived with his son and newest wife, Kathleen on base at Fort Rucker, Alabama, when something awful was reported. And this article is from the Montgomery Advertiser, December 3rd, 1978. Sergeant allegedly involved in shooting identified. Mm. The identity of a Fort Rucker Army Sergeant who died Friday after he reportedly shot his wife and himself was released by Army officials Saturday. Staff Sergeant Danny L. Rasmussen, 28, died about 12.15 p.m. Friday, within hours of the shooting, according to Fort Rucker public information officers. Rasmussen shot himself after he allegedly shot and seriously wounded his 20-year-old wife, Kathleen, with a shotgun. A hospital spokesman says Mrs. Rasmussen was in guarded but non-critical condition Saturday night. The shooting occurred at the couple's on-base housing apartment Friday morning. He said the couple's four-year-old son was visiting relatives in Arizona when the shooting took place. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. It was an attempted murder-suicide. Oh, my God. And h- how was the child? The child was in Arizona with family Okay. when that happened. Oh. And his daughters were probably with their mother. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Now, I found this a little interesting, and I don't know if it's 
because it's the 70s and people are trying to make like everything's okay. Mm-hmm. And it's a trivial little thing, but he was buried three days later at mm-hmm. the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, the Punch Bowl in Honolulu. Mm-hmm. And his wife was listed on the obituary. Wow. And I just, I, I guess I found that interesting because I don't know if I'd want to be associated with the man who tried to kill me. Wow. And Terry is listed. So it's 1978 and his brother is actually listed on the obituary. Okay. But one of his sisters was not listed and she was alive. Hmm. So I feel like there's some family stuff going on possibly there. Yeah. Or it was a mistake. Two murderers in one family. Yes. Wow. Terry and Danny's parents were Peter Lund Rasmussen Jr. and Anita Latonia Berwick. Hmm. Terry and Danny's sisters, though, were only half-sisters daughters of their mother so we'll discuss them a bit later okay but for now we'll go to the paternal side johan johansson was born in 1792 denmark wow we got a lot of people from denmark on this show i think this is the first time with a danish we had some from the netherlands i thought oh fair point they're close yeah (laughs) but at the age of about 28 johan married 22 year old medi marie Mathiasen, daughter of matthias hansen and Meta Maria John Johansson. The couple, second great-grandparents of Terry, had at least five children, one of whom was Terry's great-grandfather, Rasmussen Johansson, born in June 1834 in Abinra, Sodenberg, Denmark. And if I butchered that, I apologize to any of our Danish listeners, because I think we do have at least one or two, <laughs> or at least we have in the past. <laughs> As far as I can tell, Rasmus didn't marry until he was 37. On August 5th, 1871, in Arslev, Denmark, Rasmus married 32-year-old Anne Larson Skov, daughter of Marin Jorgen's daughter. Okay. Now, I don't know if you're noticing anything about the names, and you probably have some familiarity with it, but Jorgen's daughter literally means daughter of Jorgen. Mm-hmm. So you can pretty much guess that her father's name was Jorgen, but what his last name is is questionable. Because the names would sometimes change the surnames. Right. So it can be a little confusing in the research. Um, But the couple's fourth child was born in Arslev Mach in November 1877, Peter Lund Rasmussen. So their last name was Rasmus, and they have a son, and now he's a Rasmussen. Okay. He was the son of Rasmus. And, And this was a really common thing in Denmark. Also, the older ages of marriage were common there, too. So it's not like we're seeing, like in some of our past episodes, 15, 13, 16-year-olds getting married. Mm-hmm. It was a lot more common to see people in their late 20s, early 30s getting married. Mm-hmm. So Peter was more restless than his older siblings. He headed west to the United States. At the age of 24, in March 1902, Peter boarded a ship and headed for New York City. But why? You know, why would... I mean, I get the impression everything was kind of nice in Denmark, no major issues. So I had to do a deep dive, of course, because that's what I do, (laughs) to learn about why there were some Danish immigrants. And I found some fascinating things about Danish immigrants in general. But starting in 1850 began a surge of immigration after some missionaries came to Copenhagen speaking of a new religion in America. By the end of the 19th century, close to 20,000 Danes had left for America headed to Utah as Mormons. I did not know that a lot of Mormons were Danish. Wow, I had no idea either. 
But thinking about the handful of Mormons I know, their names are Danish. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. There's a lot of blonde ones. <laughs> they're not all. There are a lot just... of blonde Mormons, though. Yeah. Interesting. Just, right? But that wasn't the only reason. Most Danish families were large, but only one child, usually the oldest son, could take over the family farm. So starting in the mid-1800s, many young Danish men, farmers' sons, would leave for America seeking land and economic opportunity. And the more people who went over, the more letters that came back telling everybody about this new land that was wonderful and all these opportunities. Mm-hmm. Another thing I found interesting is that apparently, unlike some other ethnic groups, they, the Danish people weren't, were less likely to get into communities and create their own. Really? They, were, they tended to go more to themselves. Wow. And they also tended to blend in and Americanize a little faster. Hmm. If you consider Americanizing the melting pot and becoming more like white mm-hmm. average wasp people. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, all the people coming over weren't necessarily farmers because you did also have a lot of people coming from cities and used to staying living. So Peter heads over and he kept heading west once he got to New York. And in November 1904, he made his declaration of intention for citizenship in San Francisco, or at least through the immigration court in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Over in Denmark at the same time was Jenny Birgit Johanna Nielsen, daughter of Rasmus Nielsen. Try and say that of, ten times fast. Yeah, daughter of Rasmus Nielsen and Hannah Peterson. Jenny was born on April 2nd, 1880 in Burning, Denmark, the youngest and only girl. I mean, as far as I know, seems likely as her mother had her at age 40. Okay. I can't help but think that Jenny must have known Peter. Their towns were only 20 kilometers away because in early March 1907, Jenny boarded the ship, the Oscar II, with an uncle headed for New York City. On the manifest, she's described as four foot eleven. So she was a tiny little thing. And six days after she arrived on March 27th, 1907, Jenny married Peter Rasmussen in Salt Lake County, Utah. Wow. So they they had to have known each other, you would think. Yeah, I would hope. Yeah. But, you know, you never know. The couple would move up to the town of Evanston, Wyoming, which sits right off of I-80 today in the southwest corner of Wyoming. So it's less than five miles from Utah. And that's where they would remain and have their seven children, including son Peter Lund, Jr. in 1911. Now, while many Danes came over as farmers, not all did, Peter Sr. was a shoemaker who set up his trade to great success. I even found an ad in the Salt Lake Telegram looking for shoemakers to work with Peter in 1905. Interesting. Yes, and as it turns out, being a shoemaker was the family business. Hmm. Eventually, he would own a shop, Rasmussen Shoe Repair, where all his sons would work, according to the 1940 census. Wow. So, Peter, Jenny, and five of their children would leave Wyoming to settle in the city of Denver by 1930, where Peter and Jenny would stay until their deaths. Peter at age 77 in 1954, and Jenny at 81 in 1961. Now, what happened with their children? Oldest Johanna Lund would marry a man 20 years her senior when she was only 18 years old, Charles Isidore Hader. They ended up moving to Charles's home state of Iowa after 1930 with their two daughters, Jean and Charlene, and they would remain there. I did find this on daughter Charlene's husband, Mr. Ira Boyd Huggins, though. 
and this was in the Gazette, an Iowa paper, on the 4th of July, 1954. Boyd Huggins, operator of an Elkander barbershop, has accepted a position as assistant field director for the American Red Cross. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I should point out that Ira was a World War II vet, and he had been in the Navy. Ten years later in the Gazette, on April 15, 1964, we learned that Ira is still with the Red Cross, and the family has had to move more than once. Almost as if they were in the military. First to Colorado, then overseas to Korea, then to Japan, Hawaii, Arkansas, and in 1963, he was at Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, where he was the field director, and finally in Washington, D.C. Now, could you imagine being that family, going from Japan to Hawaii, and then Hawaii to Arkansas? (laughs) I'm like, if I were the kids, I would have protested. I would have been like, I'm going to college in Hawaii. I don't care. I, the only advantage to Arkansas is at least then you can more likely to see your extended family, but it's still, that would be a hard, yeah, hard adjustment. And part of the reason for this article is he was recently reassigned to the 1st Cavalry Division in Korea and would spend a year there. His wife and two kids would be making their home back in Iowa again until he returned. Ira and Charlene would retire in Sun City, Arizona. They were buried at Arlington National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia. That's nice. Yeah. They seem to have had a nice and happy life. They did. And nobody was murdered. Nobody was murdered. In fact, there's so many different interesting things on those trees. So many fascinating stories that we're going to cover. And I keep coming back to this thought that it wasn't the Rasmussen side. It wasn't his mother's side. It was the combination Mm-hmm. Because both he and his brother mm-hmm. murdered. And they were both Vietnam War vets. That's true. So that could have been, I mean, Played a do we know it. how they served? I mean, were they seeing I, fighting action? And I do believe that his brother saw fighting action. Danny did. Because some stuff on the military forms I was looking at indicated he was a Vietnam veteran. Mm-hmm. He had been in Vietnam. It wasn't. Yeah. But for Terry, I couldn't find anything specific. Okay. Now back to Peter Lund Jr.'s brothers and sisters. Younger brother Odin Lund enlisted in the U.S. Army in April 1942 at Denver. He made it to the rank Tech 5, when sadly he was injured as he tried to save other wounded men in the South Pacific. Wow. He was taken to the 17th Field Hospital in New Georgia on the Solomon Islands, where he died of his wounds. He was 29. Oh, wow. Yeah. Youngest brother Ambrose would marry and have three children, but also died young at the age of 41. I have no idea why. Wow. And it, part of it is I'm a little frustrated. I don't know if it's a Denver thing or something or if it's a paper thing, but all my points of where I go get newspaper articles, the Colorado selection on newspapers is minimal. Oh. Like, I'm thinking the Denver weird. Post. No. Not one Denver Post. Wow. It's like all the surrounding areas, but nothing Mm -hmm. in Denver. And this family was in Denver. So I felt hamstringed (laughs) trying to find stuff. Wow. Yeah, I can't. I wonder why that is. That's so weird. So hopefully newspapers.com and newspaper archive and several other places will eventually get the Colorado papers. Pull it together, people. Yes. Now, as to two of other siblings, Thor and Hilda, I'm not sure of the timing, but I did find this interesting. And because I believe the timing to be thus, so we'll go with my assumption. Thor married a woman 15 years his junior, 
likely around 1950 when she was 18 and he was 33. Her name was Helen Sage. She was the daughter of George Everett Sage and Maybell Bonus. I think that's how you pronounce it, or Bonus. Sadly, Maybell died in 1947 when Helen was 15. Apparently, Hilda caught the eye of Helen's widowed father because George married Hilda. Now, while Hilda was older than Helen by 13 years, she was younger than her husband by nearly 21 years. Oh my goodness. So Hilda was not only Helen's sister-in-law, but also her stepmother. (laughs) And Thor was Hilda's brother and son-in-law. That is hilarious. Honestly, I don't know who married who first, but I think it was Thor, then Helen. But, you know. (laughs) This is the quality content I'm here for. (laughs) I'm weird. I love silly stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I, I get excited when I find well, double cousins. I mean, this is what I'm, <laughs> I do this for. Well, I have to tell you, men who had a good marriage are very quick to marry. Mm-hmm. And men who are, have been in long marriages don't realize how old they are. And so they will hit on anything. And um, I'm, what surprises me is she said yes, not that he asked her. Yeah. But, you know, God love her. You know, if he was, you know, a well set up man and she would lead a comfortable life, I can totally get it. Yeah. And I think Hilda, she was like a teeny tiny little thing. I do have pictures of some of the siblings and mm-hmm. she's just teeny tiny. <laughs> so probably took after her mom, you know, the 411 yeah. and just was the tiniest of the siblings, I believe. So. Oh, my goodness. Now let's get to Terry's father, Peter Lund Rasmussen Jr. Peter was the third child and oldest boy born in November 1911. And after the family moved to Colorado, he worked for his father as a shoemaker. Then in 1942, Peter married single mother Anita Latonia Berwick, who was 24. Anita was born in Victor, Colorado on January 16, 1918, and baptized in her local Catholic parish three months later. I suspect she left the faith, though, probably due to her circumstances. Because at the tender age of 16 and likely one month pregnant, Anita married Harry Carl Carlson, age 21, in Inglewood, Colorado, in September 1934. Come July, baby daughter Joanne Ellen arrived. Clearly, the marriage didn't last. The couple divorced in October 1937. Lucky for Anita, she was able to recover because she married David J. Duncan just four months later. Ah. So she's divorced in October 1937, and she gets married four months later on Valentine's Day in Golden, Colorado. She might not have known it at the time. I suspect she and David must have celebrated her birthday in January in a very fun way. But when they did marry, she was likely one month pregnant with her second daughter, Jacqueline. Wow. This relationship was even shorter than the first. The couple divorced by the 1940 census. Wow. So it seems wise that Anita took her time before marrying again, (laughs) and this time to Peter Rasmussen. And it also seems likely that Peter adopted Jacqueline because in her yearbooks, she was always listed as Rasmussen, not Duncan. But it could be that they just did that to be easier. I don't know. I was unable to find a marriage record for Peter and Anita, but I do believe they married in 1942. And they would have Terry over a year later, then Danny in 1950. Oh, and I believe that Terry's half-sister Jacqueline still is still living today. Oh, wow. But I'm not going to reveal anything beyond that for her own privacy. But um, the sister, Joanne, died in 2002 at the age of 66. She was a mother with and grandmother with at least four children. Wow. The sisters seem to have had 
happy, normal lives without crime. Wow. So that's the paternal side. Wow. It's the maternal side where things get rather interesting. Curiouser and curiouser. Um, there's a lot of historical things that happen with this family and interesting situations they found themselves in. And I'm guessing that you know me, that I try to save the best for last, and that's why we're doing the paternal li- maternal line last. So I hope Terry's mom's line holds up for you, and it's everything that you hope it to be. <laughs> I will judge you if not. Okay. I, Do we have at least one postmaster? We'll see. <laughs> Anita's parents were John Berwick and Anna Manneth. Anita was the youngest of two children. Her older brother was John Walter, or Jack, born in 1916 in Honduras. So how did that happen? Well, John Berwick Sr. was born on January 26, 1887 in Orange County, Texas. John started working as a miner as a young man, and it was in Texas where he met Anna. Anna was 20 when she married 27-year-old John in Milan, Texas, on January 28, 1914. They didn't stay in Texas long, as John had a job opportunity that he seized onto. Later that year, John applied for passports for himself and Anna because he had a job working for the New York and Honduras Rosario Mining Company in San Juanzinto, Honduras. By December 1914, John and Anita lived there. Now, this mining company was American-owned, a gold and silver producer in Honduras and Nicaragua. The president of Honduras, Marco Aurelio Soto, offered companies a 20-year exemption from taxes if they would invest. Wow. So this man in New York, Julius Valentine, seized on this opportunity and founded the mining company in 1880, exchanging 50% of the company's stock for mining rights at San Juancinto, deposits owned by Soto. Try to say that a few times fast. Seriously. Once in the country, Rosario became the largest mining company in Honduras. Julius and his son, Washington, secured control of the wharf and rail at Puerto Cortez on the Atlantic coast. Further, Soto became a major shareholder, and one of his sons married one of Washington Valentine's daughters. So the company got really in bed with the leader of Honduras. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The operation continued to grow. By the time the Berwicks arrived, the mine had 16 levels, 100 feet apart. In 1904, 10 years prior, ore reserve estimates were close to 65,000 tons, with a total value of $721,000, going for a total profit of $217,000. Wow. And what year was that? That was 1904. Wow. That's like serious money. Yeah. And they arrived 10 years after. The Berwick stayed there for at least two and a half years, returning to the U.S. in June 1917 with their infant, Jack, who was born December 1916. Now the mining company still operates, even expanding mining operations to the Dominican Republic and El Salvador and going beyond just mining gold and silver to copper, lead, zinc, mercury, granite, limestone, and petroleum. The peak time for the company in Honduras, according to Wikipedia, was 1920, when they had 3,000 men working for them, and there was an American consulate at El Rosario. Rosario would merge with Amax Corporation in 1980, and Amax merged with Cypress Minerals Company in 1993, eventually becoming Cypress Amax Resources. And I believe it's been taken over again since then. Wow. The mine itself shut down over 50 years ago and is now part of a national park in Honduras. Wow. The Berwicks did not return to Texas. Instead, they moved to Victor, Colorado, likely for mining jobs, because there are a few mines in the area. And that's where they would have daughter Anita in 1918. 
John would move the family to Denver by 1920 and continued to work as a miner until his death at age 45 in 1932. I can find no details on why he died, but wouldn't be surprised if it had to do with mining, whether direct or indirect. Yeah, I was going to say black lung, you know, or related. I mean, if he wasn't a coal miner, it would be black lung. But, you know, you're inhaling a lot of crap when you're right. down in a mine. Wow. On a side note, on his World War One draft card, he said he was blind in his left eye. And that was filled out in 1917. Oh. So he was working blind for a number of years. Wow. His wife, Anna, died 12 years later at age 51. So Terry would never meet his maternal grandparents. Wow. Actually, that's not true. I guess his grandma died at 51. So he might have met her, but she died when he was just a young boy. So I was doing bad math, apparently, when I wrote that note down. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now before we covered the Berwicks in depth, and it's a much more complicated family... First, okay. talk about Terry's grandmother, Anna Manneth, and her family. It'll be pretty okay. quick. So, born into a very Catholic family, Anna was the oldest child, born and raised in Texas. Her parents, August Manneth and Apollina Hatlaptka, were immigrants who married shortly before coming to America in 1892 on the Moravia from Hamburg, Germany. But where they came from was a bit confusing at first, but I had some clues. On census records, they were listed as being from Bohemia, Austria, and even Hungary. Then on the ship manifest, I found the city of birth, Bikov, a town in the present-day Czech Republic. When the Manoths left, it was part of the Astro-Hungarian Empire. When that ended, the area was then Czechoslovakia, which it remained until 1993, when it split into Slovakia and the Czech Republic. I'd later find a new hint, Czech language on their tombstones. That's kind of cool. But why did they come here? There are a couple of possibilities. Farmland, or or even so that August could avoid serving in the Imperial Army, which is a mandatory 10-year term. Mm-hmm. Most Czechs who made the journey settled near towns and cities with lakes, seasides, and waterways. And cities like Galveston, New Orleans, Baltimore, Boston, St. Louis, Chicago, and more. Today, the state with the highest population of Czechs is Texas. In fact, the city with the second highest population of people with Czech heritage in the country is West Texas. Yes, that is the name of a town. West is the name of the town in McLennan County, Texas. That's awesome. And that's like, they say that uh, there are people saying that they have Czech heritage in that town is at 41%. Oh my gosh. Shiner, Texas sits at number five. Why does that matter? Well, that's where the man is settled. Okay, then. Apollina Hatlaptka, great-grandma of Terry, was born in 1867. Their ship arrived in New York City, and they made their way to Texas, where they would have four daughters, Anna, Cecilia, Mary, and Amelia. Then, on September 18, 1901, at the age of 34, Apollina died. With a house full of young daughters, August married again, just four months later, to Anna Haratmaka in West Texas. The couple would have three children of their own, Frank, Fred, and Lillian before Anna died at age 37 in April 1909. So they were only married about not even eight years. Wow. Now August had seven children at home, but he did have the older girls to help, as well as his parents, Ferdinand and Marie, who had immigrated in 1905. Yes, Miss Zelda. So he had two wives predecease him. Yes. Did they have life insurance by chance? I don't believe so. Okay. Not that I could find. You know, 
Mm-hmm. Seems a little sketch. I know. I always, it's so funny, even when I'm doing my own tree, because that's how my mind is. If I see uh-huh. somebody with like more than too many wives, or I'm uh-huh. like, was my ancestor a serial killer? Uh-huh. Yeah. But I, I mean, yeah. you know, it happened, you yeah. know, but still, wow. And it could be there was, I'm not sure why the first wife died, but I do believe the last, the second wife might have died in childbirth, but I'm not positive or okay. related to that. Okay. August would marry one more time in 1911 to Albina Janish. The couple had two children, Albert and August Harry, with two little boys and six other children still at home. Albina was overwhelmed when August died in January 1917 in Shiner, Texas. Yeah. He was 48. Albina did not care for all of her stepchildren, giving Fred and Lillian up for adoption a few years later, after all the older girls had married and left home. Oh, my. So, I, because it wasn't right away, it seems to me that she tried. Did any of them, like, go to live with their siblings or anything? She just straight up no. adopted them out. Yeah. Oh. But they all stayed in contact with the siblings. And, you know, okay. Fred was one of the ones listed on being up for adoption, but he was just turning 18. So mm-hmm. I don't think he was there for very long. Yeah. Wow. I will talk about one of Anna's siblings, her half-brother, Monsignor Albert Vincent Manneth. That sounds like he was a priest. He was. He was younger than her by 20 years, and he was called to the priesthood, performing many marriages for his family, even after he retired. Now, let's go over to the Berwicks. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, because I know this gets confusing to people, and I'm getting confused now at this second. Not really, but just to make it clear who he is. So, John Berwick is the grandfather of Terry Peter Rasmussen, and he was the son of Captain Almond, or as often written, Almond Berwick, born in pre-Civil War, Louisiana in 1856. At the age of 26... He married 18-year-old Latonia Pinder, a native of Texas, in Cameron Parish, Louisiana. Wow. Almond and Latonia would have seven children. The first four were born in Louisiana and the remaining in Orange County, Texas. Almond would be Terry's great-grandfather. Okay. But he was not a farmer. He was a sailor, hence his title, Captain. I did find an incident for, about Almond that made the papers. Ooh. And this is from the Times Democrat on February 12, 1895. Loss of the Scandinavian. The sloop Scandinavian left Orange for Galveston about 10 days ago and went about 40 or 50 miles off Sabine Pass, encountered a blow, which gradually increased to a gale. The boat was tossed about like a cork. The heavy strain caused her to spring a leak, and the water poured into her hold rapidly. It was bitter cold impossible to work the pumps and keep the boat free. Drew Pinder, a passenger on the sloop, unaccustomed to the hardships of the sea, was frozen to death and his body lay on the deck of the vessel covered with ice. Oh my God. Yeah. To stay by the vessel meant certain death and the captain Almond Berwick, mate Dave Berwick, nephew of the captain, took to the seas in an open skiff. Shortly after leaving, the boat went down, and with it, the body of Drew Pinder. And Dave and Almond did suffer from frostbite from the incident. Wow. I'd like to note that Drew was the half-brother of Almond's wife, Latonia, his brother-in-law. Okay. 
And I do have a Postmaster alert. <gasps> Yay! Postmaster alert. I'm very excited. Drew Pinder had been a Postmaster appointed in 1881 in Grossbeck, Texas, where he served for six years. Why would you leave being a good Postmaster to take to the sea? I get the impression he was just a passenger and wanted to go on the ship with his brother-in-law oh, at the time. okay, so he wasn't working said, the ship. Okay. I don't think so, unless it was a brand new job. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't know. But I can't, from what I looked, I couldn't see where Drew married or had any children. It's mm-hmm. possible, and I missed that the just records weren't available. As for Dave Berwick, he was the son of Almond's older brother, Joseph. By 1910, Almond had stopped sailing and was now working as a teamster doing general work and labor. Almond's wife, Latonia, was one of four children born to Joseph Pinder and Francis Jane Hosea or Hoser. I have saw the name written a couple ways. Now, when Joseph and Francis married in 1857, Joseph was a widower with at least two children. And we will revisit his first wife, I think. But not yet. I, you know, I wrote, wrote down that we would, but I don't remember if I wrote any notes on his first wife. Because <laughs> it was some last minute stuff I discovered. I Oh, I'm really good at finding stuff last minute. Let me just tell you. <laughs> so we'll, we'll revisit his first wife, but not yet. And if I forget to bring her up, please remind me, Zelda. Okay. Okay. I have many questions as to why he married Francis. And here's why. And it's, it's a bit disturbing to me. She was a young girl just 13 years old. Ew. And he was 37. That's so gross. Yeah. And I tried to like triple check, like surely this date on her is wrong. And she was older. It wasn't. I mean, that was her age. Wow. Joseph would die 13 years later of consumption, which is, uh, we know, we call it today tuberculosis. With four young children, including an infant, Francis remarried seven months later in November 1870, to Aaron Burr Ashworth, Jr. This time, Francis was the older woman by three years. Wow. So let's talk about a man, a young man, whose parents were probably not super thrilled he was marrying a slightly older woman with four children. Oh, yeah. Wow. But I I think they must have known her. Okay. To some degree. Because this is where it gets a little interesting. And this is the part where I'm going to revisit Joseph's first wife, because Joseph's first wife was Martha Ann Ashworth. Oh, she was the sister of Francis's second husband, Aaron Burr Ashworth Jr. That's very interesting. So I think it's almost that she spent so much time with the family mm-hmm. that it felt like a natural mm-hmm. connection. I did remember to go there. Ha ha. Okay. Um, <laughs> I just knew I was going to forget. Okay. The couple, Francis and Aaron, would have four children of their own before Francis died at age 38 in 1882. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So young. Let's return to Almond and Latonia for a little bit. Um, Almond died at the age of 72, and wife Latonia would live another 31 years until her death in a nursing home at age 95 in 1960. Wow. Now, this is about to get a lot of fun. So when I research, I look at the census first. We've discussed that before because it gives me a lot of information. Yeah, there's can be mistakes and there generally are, but it's a good first tool because you can identify 
who the parents are, the members of the family, estimated ages, location of birth. It gives you a ton of great information. So as I was looking at the census information on Ammon, I noticed a change from 1880 to 1870. To make sure it wasn't an error, something I highly doubted given the nature of what I saw, I found the 1860 census for confirmation. So on the 1880 census and forward, Almond was listed as a white man, but that 1880 census was the first time he was ever listed as white. Before that, he was listed as being mulatto. Interesting. So I will use the term mulatto here and there because I'm thinking about it in terms of a genealogy standpoint and how the historical context at the time. But for listeners, it's an old term that is not used today, which is good describing somebody of mixed race and usually it referred most often to somebody who was part black and part white but they people in at the time considered the black to be the dominant part and the most important which means you can't be white if you have any black in you mm-hmm. i mean what 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 state was i think it was louisiana was one of the states that like if you're this percent drop of blood black you're black for life mm-hmm. i mean it just was insane So it hit me as I'm looking at this information on the census that his whole family, as I look at it, was listed as mulatto, but his father was listed as white. And this was on the 1860 census in Louisiana. 1860 census, names listed mulatto in Louisiana. It meant they weren't just black, Mm -hmm. according to Louisiana. They were free black. Mm -hmm. And free blacks... Let me just start by saying that finding free black people is rare, Mm -hmm. especially in Texas after 1840 or anywhere in the South. Mm -hmm. As I dug, I hoped I'd locate the original slave ancestor. I did not. But what I did find was a family of black people who had been free for a very long time. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's a find. It was a huge find. And this has been a very well-researched family to a huge degree. I mean, you'll see what I'm talking about in a little bit. Almond's parents were Hilaire, Eli Berwick, and Lydia Ann Ashworth. The Ashworth family was a prominent family of wealth with African descent. Now, the Ashworths came from South Carolina and headed west in the early 19th century to settle in St. Landry, Louisiana. The head of the family was James Joseph Ashworth, born around 1763, likely in South Carolina. James and his wife, Keziah Dial, had at least nine children. According to a journal article in the Minnesota Journal of Law and Inequality, titled Shades of Grey, written by Jason A. Gilmer, I I found the following. To be certain, the Ashworths were light in color, They were described by one source as people of mixed blood, though nearly white. In 1840, the area the family lived in became Calcasho Parish, formed from St. Landry. So before I continue, I don't know if you caught, there was a journal article written about the Ashworth family. Oh, that's cool. So that's how I got the information. So this this journal article, Shades of Grey, was mostly about the Ashworths. Okay. So when I say well-researched, I mean... It's discussed in a lot in educational journals and beyond. So, yeah, this was a find I just made a couple days ago. That's cool. 
This family, along with a few other families of mixed race, created a strong community of free people of color in Calcasieu Parish. By 1850, 6% of the population was free blacks, a total of 239 free people of color. More importantly, these families were not clustered together, rather they were interspersed with white families. Hmm. This was not a typical experience for free people of color across the country, but it worked for this area. And white people and free people of color interacted enough that they were many marriages, oftentimes unofficial due to the law, between them. Of the Ashworths, a child of James' son, William, married a white woman named Delayed Gallier. The other children married other free people of color, most often described as mulatto. And this brings me to James's son, Aaron Burr Ashworth, father of Lydia Ann Ashworth. He married Mary Bunch, a free woman of color from Kentucky in 1829. In 1831, Aaron and his brother William crossed the Sabine River and moved to Texas in present-day Orange County. Now, Texas was still part of Mexico at the time. Mexico did not support slavery. In fact, two years prior to their move there, the Mexican president, Vincente Guerrero, no, Guerrero, Vincente Guerrero, ordered the emancipation of all slaves in Texas. As you can imagine, with even Texans today, the the idea of anybody telling them what to do did not go over well. I'm sure this appealed to the Ashworths, as well as the fertile land available to farm there. And it also drew other free people of color, including William's brothers and families. The Ashworths were successful in their pursuits in Texas. And one thing that William and I believe Aaron did was they set up a ferry system Mm. at the Sabine Path, the Sabine River, bringing people from Louisiana over, and they made a great deal of money doing this. Nice. They were very successful in Texas, and they actually survived the Texas Revolution in 1836. Or as my friend from there calls it, the Texas War to Own Slaves. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that misses some other points of the war, but that was the end result, because when Texas won, slavery came back. There was no hesitation. That was one of the first things they did. Wow. And Texans were not happy with the the number of free people of color in their state. So on February 5th, 1840, a law was passed in Texas that any free blacks trying to enter Texas would be arrested and sold into slavery for one year. Oh, my God. I mean, it's horrifying. And this, it gets worse. If at the end of that one year... The person who was arrested for being black in the state couldn't post bond. They would be sold into slavery for life. Oh, my God. So where did they expect this person to get money to post their bond? Wow. Mm -hmm. Additionally, any free blacks currently living in Texas were told they had to leave Texas within two years or the same would happen to them. Oh, my God. They were given until January 1842 to get out of the state. Texas, what the actual fuck? Yeah. Whoa. Yes. So as soon as, and so you have this Ashworth family and all their neighbors, all in Orange County, living there. And a few of them, including, I believe, the brother William, served in the Texas Revolution, fighting for Texas independence. Wow. Yeah. As soon as this act became law and the full ramifications became known... And this is the most amazing thing ever. The white neighbors of the Ashworths petitioned the Texas Congress for relief, requesting an exemption for William 
Abner, David, and Aaron Ashworth's families, as well as the family of Elisha Thomas. There were 60 names on the first petition, 71 on the second petition. Mm -hmm. The petition described these families as good citizens of Texas who helped with the revolution when the Texas legislature met in November 1840. The petitions were brought forward as well as some for other free blacks Mm -hmm. in the area. On November 20th, 1840, the Ashworth Act was passed, titled An Act for the Relief of Certain Free Persons of Color. But it went beyond just those specified families. The act would apply to all free persons of color together with their families who lived in Texas when Texans declared independence from Mexico. Wow. Yeah. That's so crazy. I mean, I'll be honest, even if I was a member of those fam- one of those families, look around and go, what if they don't believe me that I'm a member of this family, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, oh my gosh, that just boggles my mind. It, and it wasn't, it, I think the closer we get to the Civil War mm-hmm. in the years, the more there was a hold to keep those slaves. The more there was this desire to not let oh, yeah. black people be free, it, it was, it got worse and worse for black people so there anybody who was free mm-hmm. was at risk of being pulled back into slavery yep. no matter where they lived i mean their only chance of not being pulled in was possibly in the north but then there was a fugitive slave act mm-hmm. that allowed the people from the south to come up and take them back mm-hmm. and they would come, sometimes come up and take people that weren't that were free and that weren't slaves mm-hmm. that escaped and take them and put them into slavery i mean it was awful yeah and my friend who, literally, my friend is from Orange County, Texas, mm-hmm. and she and I were talking, and she goes, I never learned any of that where I lived. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, because I asked, well, do you know anything about the Ashworth Act, thinking this was something she learned in Texas history? And she goes, nope. They didn't even tell me that part of the fight for independence had to do with slavery. Wow. I mean, and we were taught, she said, that slavery was good for slaves. They liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, and it's, that's horrifying. Mm-hmm. So horrifying. So Lydia and Eli, though, they didn't stay. So Lydia would end up moving to Louisiana with Eli, and they would have seven children before Lydia died around 1859. Now, Eli was a white man, and he would marry yet another free woman of color, Mary Zilpha Hayes. Now, I went to mention that I'm doubtful that Eli and Lydia Ann were ever officially married. Ah. It's thought that they got together around 1845, but it's most likely that they were in a common law situation, which was very common at the time, especially in Louisiana, with white men and black women. Mm-hmm. Or I should be more specific, usually mulatto women, not usually black women. Mm-hmm. There's a whole culture that I was reading up on in Louisiana at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason that they wouldn't have been officially married is marrying somebody of color was illegal. Mm-hmm. However, when Eli married a second time, there was an official marriage record for Eli and Zilpha, even though she was considered mulatto or mixed race. Here's my theory on what how they made this happen. Okay. <laughs> At this point, Eli and the family are living in Louisiana, and so does Zilpha. And Zilpha likely could pass as white. It has to be, otherwise the story won't make any sense. <laughs> and given, and, and also given the fact that on later censuses, she was laid, listed as white. Okay. The couple crossed the Sabine River and got married in Orange County, Texas. 
where no one probably knew who Zilpha was. Oh. And probably didn't know that she was a mixed race. Mm-hmm. Then they returned home to Louisiana. But they got married on July 2nd, 1860. One thing I do find fascinating in all this, given the reasons for the Civil War, is that Eli enlisted in the Confederate Army on January 5th, 1864, in Company B of Spate's Battalion Infantry in Texas. Talk about acting against your own interest. Right? Wow. I just... Now, there's a lot I could get into with this battalion. I mean, there's, I saw a journal article and it was called The Swamp Angels by W.T. Block in the East Texas Historical Journal. But we have a lot more stuff to cover. Okay. But I will provide a link on the website in case anybody wants to learn about the battalion he served in. I love the name Swamp Angels. Yeah. A couple things more on Eli and the Ashworths. While the family did have some community support, it was not an idyllic situation. They had the racist neighbors and hate thrown their way as well. Mm. The following was printed in the Calcasho Press on July 4th, 1856, then reprinted where I found it in the Appaloosa Courier on July 26th, 1856. And this is kind of long. So I did amend this article from the Appaloosa Courier a little bit, (laughs) but it is long. So bear with me. But I think it's worth worth what I'm going to read. I embraced Mr. Editor, your readers will perhaps be benefited by a knowledge of the present state of affairs in Orange County, Texas. First, all the good citizens of the county are under arms on duty, endeavoring to drive out from their midst a gang of gamblers, cow, hog, and horse thieves, counterfeiters, and murderers who have been collecting in this county for many years, increasing in boldness as they increased in numbers. The number of these characters may equal 40, including all the free mulattoes and their white associates. Wow. Yeah. William Ashworth, this is the brother of Aaron, mulatto, has possessed a stock of cattle and proven himself a man of universal hospitality. But owing to his color, few people of honor and pride of character have descended to enjoy it, while hordes of gamblers, thieves, and counterfeiters hung about him. It is said that some seven men have been shot in his house in the course of his hospitality to those villains. Oh my goodness. His son Luke has pursued a course which has thrown some wealth in his hands, yet he has been a secret keeper for these rascals. Henderson, second son of William, never courted the name of honesty, (gasps) is inclined to steal. Luke and others state that he, Henderson, Pinned 18 heads of cattle belonging to neighbors and killed them for their hides, one by one. Oh my gosh. He assisted in the murder of Samuel Deputy. Now, I'm going to pause here. Samuel Deputy was a real murder that happened. But the other stuff, I couldn't find any evidence of all these murders happening at the Ashworth home. (laughs) Wow. Aaron Ashworth has never been charged with dishonesty, but having raised a number of daughters of color... He seems to have disposed of them, unluckily, among a set of lazy white men for mistresses, who were allowed more by the beauty of a few cattle bestowed on them than by the beauty of the girls. Wow. Yeah. Thus he has entailed upon our country a horde of worthless creatures in the shape of human beings who will be ready to steal and burn any property. Wow. How does he feel, though? Yeah. I don't know. I'm just thinking racist piece of shit. (laughs) But let me continue. 
Sam Ashworth, son of Aaron, seems to inherit in his disposition all the most diabolical qualities of the Indian, black, and white, without any of their principles. Is the murderer of Samuel Deputy a very useful and enterprising citizen? Then he goes on to name another other free people of color than this. The white people of Johnson's Bayou have wisely determined to rid themselves of their, and I'm not going to say how he phrased it, neighbors of color, who keep up a constant intercourse with rascals abroad. Wow. They find it impossible to let any remain. So your readers may look for the following names ere long. And including in the list of names is Eli Berwick. And then also list a bunch of the names of um, families of color. Okay. Now, Mr. Editor, your readers at once see the impro- impropriety of allowing this motley gang to settle among them without industry, without moral principle, and without the least shade of hope that their descendants, which they are propagating, can ever be admitted to an equality with white people. And they at once see the mistake which these people of color are laboring under the want of settlement. Can you convince some of the leading ones among these deluded people of this mistake and show them their true interest in making their exodus beyond the Rio Grande, where they and their children will at once be on an equality with the natives of that country? Adieu, progression. He didn't even sign his name. Wow. Basically suggesting that all these free people of color and their friends need to head to Mexico. That is just, wow. Horrible horrible wow i mean i'm sure it was a common sentiment at the time mm-hmm. in that area but oh yeah wow to, i mean that people felt brave enough to put that in print yes but he wasn't brave enough to sign his name oh okay i didn't realize that that's the thing he signed it progression wow so he's all brave and i'm gonna say all this but then he won't even sign his name wow and the people of color did not leave mm-hmm. they were still there in 1860 yay well, I started reading, I'm like, oh, there were some troublemakers. And then I'm like, oh, this is just racist garbage. Yeah. He's basically saying because they're people of color, they're criminals. Yep. They're not to be trusted. Mm-hmm. And you know, it sounds so familiar. Yep. People still use that as an excuse for other, still for black people, mm-hmm. but for other people of color as well. And it's just, mm-hmm. oh, it's so infuriating. By the way, the Samuel deputy that was mentioned in the article was shot and killed it was believed by Samuel Ashworth. I saw that Samuel Ashworth was captured, but I have no idea what happened. But I do know that he was not lynched because okay. he served in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how that all shook out because I couldn't find any more information on that case. Um, as for Eli and his family, they eventually left Louisiana, selling in Orange County, Texas, even after these nice little notes. Um, but it was after the Civil War when they settled there, probably between... Sometime between 1880 and 1895. That's a broad range, but that's all I've got. But Eli died there at age 72 in 1895. As for his second wife, Zilpha, I have this lovely little article. And it's from the Daily News Telegram on June 20th, 1926. Native Texas woman celebrates 101st birthday. Oh my goodness. Yes. Mrs. Zilpha Hayes Berwick celebrated her 101st birthday Wednesday here at the home of Mrs. Frances E. Nance. The aged woman made her home in the vicinity for a number of years. Despite her advanced age, she is able to see well with glasses and does a great deal of knitting. Mrs. Berwick was born near Orange in what is known as the Johnson Bayou Settlement in Cameron Parish. 
the daughter of the late Rudolph Hayes. She has 30 grandchildren and 12 great-grandchildren. Captain Almond Berwick of Orange, who is nearing his 70th birthday, is the youngest stepson of the aged woman. Her husband, the late Eli Berwick, was a veteran of both the Mexican and Civil Wars. Wow. She went on to live another five years, dying in November 1931 at age 106. Good on her. That's awesome. I thought that was amazing. Now, if you thought the Ashworth family and all they had to go through was compelling, wait until you learn about Eli's family, the Berwicks. So, Eli came from a very Catholic family. Yay! The second of at least five children born to Thomas Berwick and Josephine Lejeune. Now, Thomas Berwick, Eli's father, was the son of a Thomas and a grandson of a Thomas. Now, really quick, before we go too much farther into this, can you remind the listeners who Eli is? I was about to do all this. I could read your mind. You could. So, Eli would be the great-great-grandfather... I believe I have that right. Of Terry Bradshaw. Yes. Terry Rasmussen. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Terry Bradshaw. Terry Bradshaw plays football, and he'd be interested to know that these are his family. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Eli was the great great grandfather of Terry Rasmussen. So the senior Thomas Berwick was Terry's fifth great grandfather. Okay. So, so it was Eli. Great, great grandfather, then Thomas, then Thomas, and Thomas. <laughs> but it was his fifth great grandfather, this Thomas Berwick, who first came to Louisiana. That Thomas was born in Pennsylvania in 1740 and married an Irish immigrant from Dublin named Eleanor Wallace. She was also listed as Helen Wales, so I think there was maybe hmm. some accent. Mm-hmm. Maybe it just came off. I don't know. And I bet but, she had a glorious accent. I bet she did. I, I picture her as having red hair, too, even though I know that's so stereotypical, but I, I can't help myself. <laughs> they probably got married around 1770. He and Ellen then moved down to Charleston, South Carolina, or that's where they got married, but I think they moved. Thomas headed then to Pensacola, and this is in the 1780s, to request some land. Asking, please, can you give me 500 acres? Or at least something. And he was asking for the land near Natchez, Mississippi. Now, Florida was under Spanish control at the time. So he's asking this of the Spanish officials. His request was denied because Governor Bernardo de Galvez wanted him to survey Louisiana. Oh, that's a nice job if you can get it. I know. So the family ended up moving to Louisiana, settling in present day Appaloosa. Appaloosa's. That's it. That's why I screwed it up earlier. Um, Thomas did such a good job there. He was requested to also supervise construction and survey New Iberia and Atacapas. The town of Berwick, Louisiana and Berwick Bay are named after him. Hmm. But wait, there's more. We're going to go back to Eli's mother, Josephine. So these are the great-great-grandparents of Terry Rasmussen. Josephine was the daughter of Joseph Lejeune and Genevieve Langlua. It was Joseph's parents, Jean Blaise Lejeune and Marie Josepha Bro, that settled in Louisiana first. But they did not come by choice. Not exactly, anyway. Blaise was likely born in what is today Cape Breton Island in Canada around 1750. The family relocated a few times in the same general area until December 1755, when they left the area for good. First going to North Carolina, then Maryland. 
where Blaze stayed for a few years. By 1763, Blaze was an orphan, along with four siblings. Mm. An uncle, Honor Trahan, took them on the ship Britannia, headed for Louisiana. But why did they leave Canada, and why did they go to Louisiana? Was it the weather? No. It had nothing to do with the weather. Blaze and his entire family were Acadians. <gasps> oh, how cool! Descendants of the French who settled in Acadia, a colony of New France in northeastern North America. And that includes parts of eastern Quebec, Nova Scotia, and even parts of Maine. Hmm. So Blaise's first family member to settle in New France was Pierre Lejeune I, who was born in 1595. This would be Terry's 10th great-grandfather. And Pierre settled in Annapolis Royal, New France, in 1611. So this is long before Plymouth Rock. Yeah. Wow. But then the Great Expulsion happened. This was a part of the British military campaign against France during the French and Indian War to deport the Acadians from their homes, homes they had known for generations. For the Lejeunes, they had been there for seven generations. Mm -hmm. At first, the Brits would send the Acadians to the 13 colonies. But after 1758, they started shipping them to Britain and France. So from 1755 to 1764, approximately 11,500 Acadians were deported. Only about 2,600 avoided capture. Wow. Yeah. In the first wave, most Acadians ended up in rural communities. That's where the British wanted them. In the rural communities of Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and South Carolina. But the Acadians didn't like that. They didn't want to be in those rural communities, and they didn't stay where they were. And so they headed to the towns, especially near the sea, if they had access. And you also have to remember, these are French Catholics. So they're wanting to form communities and have church with each other as well. And this displeased the British very much because they didn't want them in the cities. They were worried that this was going to work to the French's advantage in war and mm -hmm. all that. This is why this, with the second wave, they started deporting the Acadians to Britain and France. Now, this is where it gets interesting. The Lejeunes were in Maryland. But why did they go to Louisiana? I suspect it's because they heard from friends and family who had been sent to France. Mm -hmm. A man by the name of Henri de la Caudronere encouraged those deported to France to head to Louisiana, at the time a Spanish colony. So the Lejeunes decided to go where the people they knew were, a place they could form a new community, a new French Catholic community. These Acadian refugees became known as today's Cajuns. Dun dun dun. Duh. And that is the family tree of Terry Peter Rasmussen. There was so much good stuff in that. I know. There was a postmaster. There were Acadians. <laughs> there were multiple wives who had mysterious deaths. Yes. And the brother was a murderer. Yeah. That's that one's crazy. Yes. It was a crazy tree. But, you know, the only crimes that happened in this family happened with Terry and his brother. Yeah. As far as we can officially. Right. That we can tell. So, yeah. And we had people who were, I mean, a law was named after part of, of his family. Yeah. Yeah. That's and so crazy. I know. it. That was a wild ride. And what's really sad is I got, I made a mistake at one point. I'm like writing stuff down. I 
got confused and in my head I had that the Manus were from Slovakia and I found some really interesting history there and I'm writing it all up and I realized, oh wait, they were from the Czech Republic. Never mind. So, <laughs> so I've saved that for if we ever run across anybody who came from Slovakia. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. Well, I have to say, I'm just like, this is one of the more interesting ones we've done, you know? Mm -hmm. And I do hope, because we know for a fact that he has descendants and, you know, brothers and sisters and probably nieces and nephews and other relatives who are still alive. And if they come across this and have questions, I'm sure you would be delighted to talk with them. I would love to talk to them. And I know one of his daughters, because I do know the names, and I, I... I know she is doing her own family tree. Mm-hmm. I saw it. And so, but I think that's out of a need because I, I do want to say she is very much, and her sister, I believe, is the same way, trying to figure out who their dead sister is. Mm-hmm. They want to know more about her. So I think that's part of the reason for her digging in their family tree. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of us are just interested in our family history. So there's that mm-hmm. too. If anybody, like we said, Mississippi, anybody, anywhere, honestly, because this will help not just solve the case with um, Terry Peter Rasmussen, but it would help other cases potentially, submit your DNA to GedMatch.com. Mm-hmm. So if you've gotten your DNA profile, you can download the DNA thing and upload it to GedMatch. That's what investigators generally go to to search. Mm-hmm. And that would be helpful. So the more people who could do that, the better. Wow. My brain is very full. This was amazing. I had fun with this one. And I'm starting to work on our next one. (gasps) Who's our next one? Well, (laughs) I did not do this on purpose with the names. So let me explain where the next one came from before I tell you who it is. Okay. One of my very favorite shows. I've been watching it now for (laughs) 19. No. 2004, I think, was their first season. So 17 years is the first 48 on A&E. Love that show. And what it is, is it follows homicide detectives as they're trying to solve the crime. Well, I remember seeing this episode years ago, but I forgot about it completely because it was their second season, first episode. And we were recently watching the first 48, my husband and I, because it's one of the few crime shows I can get him to watch with me. And he likes it. So there you go. And they were combining several, they, they have like a special segment called critical cases or something. And they combined three or four different past episodes and quick little clips okay. to show what happened. And this one popped up and he looks over at me and goes, you should do that one. Oh my. And I'm like, I forgot about that one. So if you want to prepare to listen to this next, our next episode coming after Terry Rasmussen, and get an idea, watch season two, episode one of the first 48 to learn about Terry Blair. Dun, 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 dun. And he was a serial killer. And I'll give you a little hint as to why I'm looking at. He came from a family of killers. Oh, my goodness. It's fascinating. I mean, I'm already looking and I mean, this is all like on the Wikipedia page. I mean, quick look up, but his older brother was killed on death row for a murder. Oh my God. So this one 
even if I can't go too far back. And I, I do have some concerns I won't get too far back because he is of African ancestry. Mm-hmm. He's a black man, which I'm excited to be able to cover that. A lot of his victims were black. Mm-hmm. In fact, I want to say all of his victims were probably black, but I'm not positive. So I'm excited about doing this one. But I know I'm going to hit, likely hit some walls once I get past mm-hmm. a certain point yeah. because they were slaves. So that's a challenge in and of itself. But I'm excited to at least try to dig mm-hmm. in that area. Very see cool. see if I can find anything. So this will be an interesting one. So do wow. your homework. I will. Before you watch the next one. I will. Yeah. <laughs> before you listen to the next one, I should say, because you're not watching. Again, I keep saying, trying to say we watch. Maybe someday, you know, when the money starts rolling in. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, we have so much. Yes. Have you read any good books lately? Uh, I'm actually reading right now Blood of Elves. Oh, that's interesting. I I can't remember the, I can't, and I probably couldn't pronounce the author's name. I feel so bad. But book one of the Witcher series. (gasps) Oh, yeah. And I had seen the show and I love the show. Uh And well, Henry Cavill has some problematic attitudes about women. I don't care. He's fun to watch on screen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. That's so funny. I'm just really... So I, I, I'm having a hard time really getting into it at different points. I mean, I when I start reading it, I'm good. But then I will put it down and I can walk away for a couple of days and then come uh, back to it. Yeah. So I'm trying to be better about reading it. So I'm like almost 300 pages in. Wow. <laughs> so it's not like I'm not committed. So I'm trying to stick with just that book. My problem is I get distracted by other books going, ooh, let me pick that one up. It's a quicker read. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's but it's so good. Funny. How about you? So now with the new job and everything, have you had a chance to read anything? Well, um, so for this other little project I'm doing, we're mutually reading a book called The Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi. Oh, yes. I've read and that. And it's so good. It's so good. I've read it before. I'm reading it again. This is a second reread. And, you know, one of the things that I love about it is that there's so much of it that is such a perspective I've never seen explored before because mm-hmm. most sci-fi fantasy is very Eurocentric and this is Afrocentric yes. and it's so fascinating and beautiful. And the way she writes is so just mesmerizing. Like you, I get lost in this story. And I, I think I finished it within a couple of days. I mean, it just so drew me in mm-hmm. and I wanted to know, and I do want to read the second book. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the, I must've read it before the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. And I was good. So I, one of these days I will check out the book from the library and get it. Because I think it's only available in hardback right now. Otherwise yeah. I might have bought the yeah. the second one from home. But I tend not to get the hardbacks that often because mm-hmm. they're so much more expensive. Yeah. No, I hear you. And in fact, um, I put myself on a book moratorium because um, <laughs> I have books everywhere. And quite mm-hmm. a few of them I have not yet read. And so I'm kind of like, okay, until I read my books that I've already purchased, then I cannot buy more books. Now, if I want to get books out of the library, that's okay. You know, I'm not saying these are the only books I can ever read, but I just feel like I don't want to be a book hoarder. You know, one of those folks who just like piles up books, never reads them, you know, doesn't know what they say inside, just admires the pretty covers. But I'm at the point where my bookshelves are full. And so... I'm like, I have to, I have to make some choices here. I have to make some choices. So the other thing I've been entertaining myself with is, as you know, I found a house. Yeah. And I'm going to be part of the landed gentry soon. Yes. I'm very excited. Welcome to the club. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to this. And I've been mesmerized by paint colors. So, cause I'm going to repaint the entire inside. 
Yeah. Because the paint that's there is not not livable. I mean, it's... It's, it's not awful. It's just not your style. Well, and it's it not... went nice with the folks, with the stuff that they have, you know, because it's this mud brown that's super trendy and fashionable and stuff. But my colors are tend to be like springier, lighter, happier. They're happier colors. They're less, yes. they're more like joy and dancing and less like coziness and, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, that whole thing's getting painted like ASAP. That's been kind of my little hobby the last couple weeks has been just paint colors. There's so many things one can do to a room. So. Well, and this week my girls are on spring break. Oh, fun. So the downside is I don't get any time to myself, Mm -hmm. but the positive side is I get to sleep in every day. So I'll take it. Oh, that's nice. And I get to spend time with the girls. I mean, I don't want it to sound like I'm the awful mom going, oh, I don't want my kids. But they were here so often during the pandemic. It's just, and now they're going back to school, which is great, but yeah. Yeah. It's, Mama's it's still okay, recovering. Mama, to get some time to yourself. It's okay. Yes. But I don't have any big projects like you do. Well, if you get bored I mean, and you exciting. want to come down and, you know, help me pick out paint colors, you don't have to do any actual <laughs> painting because I found out you can hire people to do these things who are like actually really good at it. <laughs> and won't slosh paint all over the carpet or ceiling or... Well, don't tell my husband because he always paints everything for us, so... <laughs> <laughs> I actually really enjoy painting, so... Um, mm-hmm. But with this case, I would have to use a ladder for far too much of it, so... Oh. And I don't do ladders. So, but we're taking care of other... I say we. It's all him. <laughs> I tried to help paint in the past, and he looked at my painting, and just like my parents, he goes, no, just go. Oh. <laughs> Apparently, I'm not good at painting a room. (laughs) How rude. My goodness. I'm better at other things like decorating the rooms. That's lovely. And picking the paint colors and doing all that. Yeah, I might need your help there because I'm not great at decorating a room. So So. I just try to get things that don't clash and throw them all together and call it good. Well, after you get settled, I'll have to come out there and we'll go shopping and buying stuff to help decorate. Yay! I'll help you spend your money. Yay! Even if we don't end up (laughs) spending any money because sometimes I can get cheap. Um, Come down, hang out, and we'll go do stuff. Oh, definitely. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. We had a lot of fun on this one. (laughs) Thanks for listening, y'all, and we will see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.